Reflections on T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Well, it's probably a little too melodramatic for me to say that my heart is about to burst with this poem. Uh, But it's the appropriate metaphor, at least, because uh, what's about to happen may resemble a sort of splattering explosion more than it resembles a uh, calm and deliberate explication of a poem. To puzzle over whether the hollow man is better served by explication or by incantation is to enter into the dilemma that gave rise to the poem. So I'd like to begin by reading. It's a very short poem. I'd just like to to read it, and then we'll start to uh, uh, go at it uh, verse by verse. I'm going to skip the first epigraph and go straight to the poem itself, and we'll come back to that epigraph later on. The Hollow Men, a penny for the old guy. We are the hollow men, we are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw, alas. Our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless, as wind in dry grass or rats' feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom remember us, if at all, not as lost violent souls, but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. Eyes I dare not meet in dreams, in death's dream kingdom these do not appear. There the eyes are sunlight on a broken column. There is a tree swinging, and voices are in the wind singing more distant and more solemn than a fading star. Let me be no nearer in death's dream kingdom. Let me also wear such deliberate disguises, rat's coat, crow's skin, cross staves in a field, behaving as the wind behaves, no nearer. Not that final meeting in the twilight kingdom. This is the dead land. This is cactus land. Here the stone images are raised. Here they receive the supplication of a dead man's hand under the twinkle of a fading star. Is it like this in death's other kingdom, waking alone at the hour when we are trembling with tenderness, lips that would kiss form prayers to broken stone? The eyes are not here. There are no eyes here in this valley of dying stars in this hollow valley, this broken jaw of our lost kingdom. In this last of meeting places, we grope together and avoid speech, gathered on this beach of the tumid river, sightless unless the eyes reappear as the perpetual star, multifoliate rose of death's twilight kingdom, the hope only of empty men. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Here we go round the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. For thine, the kingdom.
Between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response, falls the shadow. Life is very long. Between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence, between the essence and the descent, falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. For thine is... Life is... For thine is the... This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. And we occasionally have to go back and search for sources just to get a sense of, of the consciousness that assembled the poem. The consciousness that we're most keen to get at, however, is the consciousness of the poem itself. But in terms of how I've reacted to the poem, I think it's likely that Act 4, Scene 2 of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar may have the origin of the title. Caesar has sent Pindarus on an embassy to Brutus, and Brutus comments about the formality of the embassy, and he says, When love begins to sicken and decay, it useth an enforced ceremony. There are no tricks in plain and simple faith, but hollow men, like horses hot at hand, make a gallant show and promise of their mettle. But when they should endure the bloody spur, they fall their crests and, like deceitful jades, sink in the trial. And that seems to respond to the thrust of the poem for me because Eliot has taken his time in his earlier poetry, Proofrock, Sweeney Among Nightingales, Grantian, and The Wasteland, to describe a world uh, in which love has begun to sicken and decay. And the result of that, says Shakespeare in the Brutus speech, is that there is now an enforced ceremony, that there's something about the relationship between the crisis and ritual or formalities. And they become no longer something natural. The ceremonies that grow out of faith and love, uh, he says, there are no tricks in plain and simple faith, Shakespeare says. Uh, but once that plain and simple faith falls down, once there is a sickening and decay of love, then the ceremonies which may have worked before become, become enforced and artificial and no longer serve their ceremonial or ritual purposes and leave us, in a sense, stranded, certainly leave us religiously stranded because we need them for our religious lives. So, <clears throat> as an overall approach to the poem, I would say that the Hollow Men is a poem that is trying at once to reappropriate the ritual dimension of life and to wrestle with the suspicion that such a reappropriation is no longer possible nor perhaps even legitimate. Eliot seems to have arrived at, a, at an impasse in his life which was both poetic in, a sen in terms of his literary career and religious in terms of his spiritual development. Speaking of the poetic one, but with, I think, echoes of the religious one, in a 1923 essay, now the 1923 essay comes in between, published in 23, it comes after Wasteland's written, before The Hollow Men is written, uh, but in that period in which some, a major shift is taking place, Hollow Men appears right between The Wasteland and the conversion to the Anglican Church, formal entry into the Anglican Communion. So just uh, in 23, writing about literary matters, Eliot said this, 
Is it possible and justifiable for art, the creation of beautiful objects and of literature, to persist indefinitely without its primitive purposes? Is it possible for the aesthetic object to be a direct object of attention? Italicize the word direct object of attention. The primitive purposes of art were always religious. That is to say, art, the purpose of art was to provide a threshold into the world of mystery, into the religious realm, into a world larger than the world in which we usually function. And Eliot notices that art has ceased to perform that function, or he feels it has ceased to perform that function, that it is now calling attention to itself and not to something on the other side of itself. And he asks in this, these couple of sentences, can it, can it continue to do that and still be art in any fundamental way? And this, I think, is a metaphor for his religious dilemma as well. There's a line in Matthew Arnold's poem in which he talks about wandering between two worlds, one dead, one powerless to be born. I think that describes Eliot at, at this point in his life. But Eliot has glimpsed the one that is powerless to be born. And that is the source of his, I think, inner torment. At the end of the wasteland, when the thunder spoke and said, Da, and one of the uh, understandings of Da, the, one, the understanding that the gods understood from that uh, syllable, was damnata, which means to give, and Eliot understood it to mean to give over, to give control over. And so the poem says, The boat responded gaily to the hand expert, in, with sail and oar, the sea was calm. Your heart would have responded gaily when invited, beating obedient to controlling hands, but he could not. Would have responded gaily, but he could not. And this is a rehearsal a little bit, the wasteland, the end of the wasteland, but remember in Canto Two of the Paradiso, Dante had said, if you turn back to your own shore, except for those of you who have eaten of the bread of angels, which is the, Euc uh, the Eucharist, Panis Angelicus. The next line in the Eliot poem is, I sat upon the shore fishing with the arid plain behind me. Uh, so he, he senses, glimpses that other world, steeped in Dante as he was. He senses the other world towards which Dante is sailing in the Paradiso. But he is, almost with Dante's injunction, forbidden to enter there. Because he has not entered into that, into that communion for which Pontus Angelicus is the symbol. And so he sits on his own shore. The candor of these poems is stunning. It's absolutely stunning. Paul Tillich talks about the risk of faith. And, of course, in a sense, only a few people have re realized the risk of faith. Uh, it, it may have something to do with the level at which we experience the whole dilemma presented by faith. But those who have a better appreciation of it have understood the risk involved in faith. And so Tillich talks about the risk involved in faith. And he says this, the risk to faith in one's ultimate concern, that's the Tillich way of talking about this, the risk to faith in one's ultimate concern is indeed the greatest risk man can run. For if it proves to be a failure, the meaning of one's life breaks down. One has given away, damyata, one has given away one's personal center without having a chance to regain it. Now, that requires an unequivocal giving, which is almost unintelligible to the modern mind. This is something that Jacques Maritain said in his 1952 Mellon lecture 
Uh, they were later published under the title uh, Creative Intuition in Art and Poetry. He says this. Now, think, think of Eliot and his dilemma at this point in his career. In order that there should grow unceasingly, conforming to its law, the life of the creative spirit, it is necessary that the center of subjectivity where this creative spirit awakens to itself in suffering the things of the world and those of the soul should unceasingly be deepened. In following this line of reflection, one would probably be led to ask oneself whether, beyond a certain degree of depth, this progress in spirituality can continue unless, under one form or another, a religious experience properly so-called helps the soul of the poet to quit the surface level. Continuing at any price, refusing heroically to renounce the growth of the creative spirit when one has nevertheless made impossible such an experience postulated by the whole being, wasn't this perhaps the secret of Nietzsche's disaster? The first epigraph to the poem is Mr. Kurtz, He Dead. Very profound. Mr. Kurtz, He Dead. That's the reference to the heart of darkness. Kurtz, the refined, intelligent, educated German who gets drawn in, drawn upriver in the Belgian Congo and lost in, the prim lost in what Gerard calls the primitive sacred and the darkness and, and uh, bewilderment of that experience. And in a way, Kurtz and Nietzsche have much in common. One's almost tempted to say that, uh, that Eliot, if not Eliot, then the poem somehow has Nietzsche in mind when it says, Kurtz, he dead. It's already been tried. That solution to the problem has been tried, and the announcement is that Kurtz, he dead. You see? It's like what's late 50s, early 60s, you'd find written on the men's room wall, which was Nietzsche said God is dead, and then God, is, God said Nietzsche's dead. But Kurtz, he dead. The Kurtz option exists because, as Jung says, we will not in the end tolerate a meaningless life. And what we must have in our lives at some point or another, unless we can manage to delude ourselves all the way through it, is what Maritain speaks of when he talks of an experience postulated by the whole being. And what draws Kurtz upriver in the Congo is, I think, the longing to have an experience that registers at every level of one's being and not simply in the head piece stuffed with straw, as Elliot had. In a sense, the sacramental and ritual bridge has broken down, leaving us stranded on one shore, unable to say, Amen, and have all the chakras open at once to mix metaphor. And there is a passing similarity between what... I'm mixing all of this up because it's all mixed up in me, I have to say. There's a passing similarity between what Owen Barfield calls original participation, what Girard calls the primitive sacred, and what Barfield calls final participation. There's a passing similarity between them. 
both seem to be experiences postulated by the whole of one's being. It's not quite true in the case of the primitive sacred because the primitive sacred is only ecstatic to the extent that it has eliminated the conscious mind. But in any case, when we're desperate enough, we resort to that. If we don't have any other ritual access to experiences postulated by the whole of our being, we will eventually resort to the primitive sacred and follow Kurtz upriver. And this poem begins with the recognition that that is no longer an option. Mr. Kurtz, he dead. His last words, Kurtz's last words, were the horror, the horror. And Marlowe, who narrates the story, said of the words, he said, it seemed to him the expression of some form of belief. It had the appalling face of a glimpsed truth. And it is a glimpsed truth. He has glimpsed the truth in the same way that Eliot has glimpsed the truth and that Nietzsche glimpsed the truth. And the truth is the truth of the primitive sacred. But for Eliot, he is dead. Kurtz is dead. Nietzsche is dead. The whole option of trying to achieve an experience postulated by the whole of one's being by going upriver in the Congo has been played out and is no longer an option. So Eliot is forced to deal with problem without that option. Let me quote Jung and Tillich here a little bit before we get into it. Here Jung speaks of this dilemma in terms of uh, the Christian dispensation in reflecting on both the quote-unquote Catholic and quote-unquote Protestant thrust of that movement. Jung says, the bridge from dogma to the inner experience of the individual has broken down. What I'd like, the major metaphor I'd like for us to operate with is, is the metaphor of of gap, of uh, what Merton calls in his, the poem about There Is No Road to Grace's House, the uncrossed crystal water be between our Coney Island and her spring Sun Hill. This gap, that ritual properly understood, properly experienced, helps us across. Because of the crisis that, uh, of, of the modern world, we have been deprived of a, of a ready access to that crossing. So, Jung uses the same metaphor, essentially. The bridge from dogma, speaking of the quote-unquote Catholic dispensation, the bridge from dogma to the inner experience of the individual is broken down. Instead, dogma is believed. It is hypostatized, as the Protestants hypostatized the Bible. Dogma has become a tenet to be accepted in and for itself with, these are important words, with no basis in any experience that would demonstrate its truth. The Protestants, on the other hand, Jung goes on to say, discarded, except for a few pallid remnants, the ritual that every religion needs, and now relies solely on the solo fides standpoint, the faith alone, as a result of which the content of faith is continually crumbling away. This is background of Eliot's dilemma here, but one more thing. A apropos of the, although he doesn't speak of it specifically, apropos of, of what the role of, uh, possible role of ritual, something Tillich says about faith. Quote, faith is an act of the total personality, what Maritain calls an experience postulated by the whole of one's being. Faith is an act of the total personality, 
and is not imaginable without the participation of the unconscious elements of the personality structure. The question, of course, is how do you get those to participate without taking over? He goes on to say, they are always present and decide largely about the content of faith. But on the other hand, faith is a conscious act, and the unconscious elements participate in the creation of faith only if they are taken into the personal center which transcends each of them. If this does not happen, if unconscious forces determine the mental status without a centered act, faith does not occur and compulsion takes its place and one goes up river with Kurtz. For faith, this is Tillich continues, for faith is a matter of freedom. Not to forget that. Faith is a matter of freedom. Freedom is nothing more than the possibility of centered personal acts. In this respect, freedom and faith are identical. In a sense, that's a background to the problem that Eliot, I think, is wrestling with. He sees the other shore, in a sense. He sees it well enough to, know, to, well enough to write a poem about it if he was unscrupulous enough to do that. But he won't because he writes the poem out of his own experience. His own experience is that there is a... The bridge has broken down. At this moment in his life, he can't get across it, even though he knows what it's like on the other side to some extent. He's glimpsed it. So now, um, go into the poem. The specific epigraph to the poem is a penny for the old guy. And this is what the children call out on Guy Fawkes Day in England, November 5th, when the execution of Guy Fawkes is commemorated in a, in a strange way. And before I get into that, I, I want to say, I remember when, the, when, I, when we were relying heavily on the Jungian hermeneutic uh, in approaching various pieces of literature, and I often would say to myself, how could somebody, how could Dante, for instance, or you know, how could whoever, how could they have written this without having read Jung? You know, I just, uh, and I've likewise had that feeling about this poem with regard to the Girardian hermeneutic. Uh, how could it be that this poem presents the dilemma to us in, in terms of a hermeneutic that had not been articulated when the poem was written? Well, that's the nature of the mystery of poetry. But it's also the nature of the, of the, uh, of the whole pr interpretive process. And uh, since part of this is going through my own psyche, it, you know, it picks up what's there. So let me try to justify what may seem like an, un, an illegitimate appropriation of the poem for other reasons. I don't think it is. I really don't think it is. But in case it is, let me quote to you T.S. Eliot. Eliot says, it is a commonplace to observe that the meaning of a poem may wholly escape paraphrase. It is not quite so commonplace to observe that the meaning of a poem may be something larger than its author's conscious purpose and something remote from its origin. End quote. So not knowing in detail what Eliot's conscious purposes were, the poem is available for what seems to be the issue for us. And anyway, in any event, it's absolutely stunning that it begins with this little epigraph there, a penny for the old guy. Guy Fawkes was a Catholic convert at the beginning of the uh, 17th century, or at the end of the 16th century. 
he was a military adventurer. He was off in Spain or someplace on a military campaign. The, the strictures of English society had been closing in on the Catholic, on Catholic at least they, that's how they sensed it, and a number of them uh, uh, developed a uh, plot to, uh, to blow up the parliament while James I and his cabinet were in residence there. So they sent for Guy Fawkes, got him back. He agreed to do it. They rented the adjacent uh, building and got access to the, to the basement, put uh, unbelievable quantities of gunpowder, it's called the gunpowder plot, underneath the Parliament building, and were going to set it off when Parliament uh, convened and uh, James I was there. Word got out on the day of the, uh, uh, that it was planned, and Guy Fawkes was arrested. And he was tortured at some great length until he revealed who his co-conspirators were, and then he was executed across the street from the Parliament building. And Guy Fawkes Day is the celebration of that execution. And uh, in it, fireworks are set off. Effigies of Guy Fawkes are created and uh, dangled around, and children run around a penny for the old guy so, that, so they can go buy fireworks to set them off. You see? Now, nothing more appropriately speaks to the Girardian hermeneutic. This is how we come together. This is how we convene the cultural consensus is around the sacrificed one. Forget his culpability. His culpability is incidental to this. Uh, but it is in the unanimous agreement to eliminate the pharmacos, the culprit, that brings us together. I think it's absolutely stunning because in a sense Guy Fawkes Day is is the revelation of the whole ritual DNA. And I think Eliot is somehow aware of that. In a sense, Eliot is standing on this, the same shore that we are maybe still fishing, on that same shore that where we left him at the end of the wasteland, looking at the ruins of what used to be the bridge going across, see, wishing to get across, the ritual bridge that might get him across, that might that might uh, introduce him to an experience postulated by the whole of his being, and recognizing in some way that the ritual that might do that would have to be some version or another of Guy Fawkes Day. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men. Now, notice that those two terms are used really interchangeably. Hollow and stuffed. Two versions of the same problem. doesn't matter. Some are hollow, some are stuffed. Same, same problem. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together. You see, deprived of this ritual, our whole, the, the whole sense of community begins to unravel. Leaning together, headpiece filled with straw, alas. Our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind and dry grass or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom remember us, if at all, not as lost, violent souls, 
like Kurtz and Guy Fawkes, but only as hollow men, the stuffed men. He's in, well, as we will see in a minute, he's in death's dream kingdom. But here he speaks of death's other kingdom, and he speaks of it again in a different way, but here he speaks of it, when he speaks of it, it's a capitalized K. So I think we're, there are two versions of death's other kingdom, and one is the version of death's other kingdom that has to do with those who crossed with direct eyes, as opposed to those left in this kingdom whose eyes are indirect. Or there is something, there's a problem with our eyes, which this poem explores at great length. But those who have crossed remember us, if at all, not as lost violent souls, but only as hollow men, as stuffed men. Now that's a reference, I think, clearly to the realm of the uncommitted in Dante's Inferno. Virgil says to Dante about the people, these are the people who were neither lost violent souls uh, nor uh, souls of virtue and rectitude. Uh, they ne were neither this nor that. They were, the, they were the tepid that are spewed out of the mouth. The people in hell had contempt for it. Virgil says to Dante of them, these are the nearly soulless whose lives concluded neither blame nor praise. So that's where we are. And now he explores the, the, the eyes. Eyes I dare not meet in dreams. In death's dream kingdom, these do not appear. There, the eyes are sunlight on a broken column. There is a tree swinging, and voices are in the wind singing more distant and more solemn than a fading star. One can only come away with the you know, personal impressions of poetry like this, uh, but I must, I'll share with you the image that I had, and I keep having it each time I read this passage. The image is of Eliot, who was steeped in Dante. And I think envious, as I said before, of the, uh, of the spiritual resources available to Dante is no longer available to him. And his focus on the eyes is, uh, is taken from Dante, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later on in, in this poem. Uh, but just suffice it to say at this point, his emphasis on the eyes is taken from Dante. He's analyzing the problem in terms of how, of how Dante in Divine Comedy spoke of eyes in several passages. Uh, but he says, we don't have those eyes. They're not available to us. Eyes I dare not meet in dreams in death's dream kingdom. These do not appear. That's here. But there, you see, I see Eliot, in a sense, glancing over this apparently impenetrable barrier and seeing Dante and Dante's cosmos and longing for what it had, but seeing it only with that sort of that, in a sense, heartbroken feeling of its grandeur and its beauty and the fact that it is in ruins as far as the modern world is concerned. There, he says, the eyes are sunlight on a broken column. It's a beautiful image, really, but it's an image that is both strikingly beautiful and poignant because it's really the archaeological ruins. The eyes that he's looking for, we'll, speak, we'll see later, are the eyes of Beatrice. 
and the eyes of Dante once he washed in the river of light. Those eyes, when he looks from the modern point of view, modern locale, over to where those eyes might have existed, it all seems like sunlight on a broken column. There, again looking over into the Dantean world, this is just how I've experienced this passage. There, a tree is swinging and voices are in the wind singing more distant and more solemn than a fading star. There's longing and a sense that one can't reach it. There's no explicit reference to this, but I, I want to bring it in because it remind, this passage reminds me of this stanza in uh, Matthew Arnold's uh, The Scholar Gypsy. Arnold is the one who said, wandering between two worlds, one dead, one powerless to be born. Well, there's a little bit of that in the, in the scholar Gypsy. And uh, these are, this is the stanza. Thou waitest for the spark from heaven, and we, now get this, light half-believers of our casual creeds, who never deeply felt nor clearly willed, whose insight never has borne fruit in deeds, whose vague resolves never have been fulfilled, for whom each year we see breeds new beginnings, disappointments new, who hesitate and falter life away and lose tomorrow the ground won today. Ah, do not we, wanderer, await it too. Await the spark from heaven. You know, there is no road to grace's house. You, he says, wanderer, are waiting the spark from heaven and we, light half-believers of our casual creeds, who never deeply felt nor clearly willed. We wait it too. In other words, the, the chasm exists. There is nothing to do but, O oh Lord, thou pluckest me out. O oh Lord, thou pluckest me out. Again, I see him glancing over at Dante uh, and realizing that Dante had this enormous, in a sense, vehicle for helping him get over that impossibility and he looks at, at and and he realizes that it is in fact if you, if I may use these terms I know they're somewhat loaded it is in fact a sacramental liturgical ritual vehicle Eliot has read Fraser and Jesse Weston Eliot's far beyond Joseph Campbell he recognizes that all, in, a, in some astounding way, he recognizes that these rituals are all versions of Guy Fawkes Day. And so how are you going to get across? Mr. Kurtz, he did. You can't just do it by blowing the fuses anymore. So how to get across? The other thing is, which comes out next, is that there is still part of him that does not want to, that's still afraid of it. This beautiful, in a sense, longing, sunlight on a broken column, the wind singing more distant and more solemn than a fading star, beautiful longing for that. Then comes this other tr tremendously candid admission, I think if we read it right, let me be no nearer in death's dream kingdom. Let me also wear such deliberate disguises. Rat's coat, crow's skin, cross staves in the field. That is to say, the effigy of Guy Fawkes. 
let me be one of the little stuffed headpiece filled with straw dry effigies too, please. In other words, I'd like not to be, in a sense, spat out of this cultural delusion. As bad as it is in here, if there's no way of cross it, it's worse outside it. So he says, let me be no nearer in death's dream kingdom. Let me also wear such deliberate disguises. Rats, coat, crow skin, cross staves in the field, behaving as the wind behaves no nearer. And I think we have to understand behaving as juxtaposed to being. In other words, let me just behave as the wind behaves. As Hannah Arendt says in one of her things, to behave as though I knew the truth. Let me also wear such deliberate disguise. Now, the problem is, of course, and we'll get to this at the end, that once the disguises become deliberate, then to continue to wear them is to run a very great risk indeed. Let me behave as the wind behaves, no nearer. Not that final meeting in the Twilight Kingdom. I, I think of uh, Robert Frost's, uh, somebody once in a reading said, uh, said your response to one of these poems, it's a very clever poem. Are you trying to trip the critics up? And he said, yes, I am. But I assure you this, I want them to fall forward. Eliot couldn't give up the intellect in a certain way, but that's what makes him so valuable. Because W.S. Merwin says, when you, when you can no longer believe, you have to build a bigger temple. By refusing to give up what he intellectually understood, he was forced to, in a sense, enlarge the temple. Section 3. This is the dead land. This is cactus land. Here, now remember, section 2, he spoke of there. There, sunlight on a broken column, tree swinging, so on. Here, the stone images are raised. Here, they receive the supplication of a dead man's hand under the twinkle of a fading star. Again, it comes back to the fading star. Now he's talking about our world, Death's Dream Kingdom. And what happens is that the will to worship, which is in us all, will not stay dormant forever. It will come out. It will express itself. And if the only environment in which it, it has in which to express itself is the heap of broken images, it will take one of them and put it up on a pedestal and bow down to it. So the idolatry of the present cultural situation has to do with the will to worship uh, being expressed in a situation that is providing very little in the way, as far as Eliot at, at this point in his life is concerned, very little in the way of, of uh, resource or instruction about what to do with the will to worship. And so the here the stone images are raised. 
Here they received the supplication of a dead man's hand under the twinkle of a fading star. Is it like this in death's other kingdom? Now this is death's other kingdom, second time that's been mentioned, but now it's death's other kingdom, small k. Is it like this in death's other kingdom? Waking alone at the hour when we are trembling with tenderness, lips that would kiss form prayers to broken stone. Think a reference to your somewhat oblique reference to uh, Paolo and Francesca in Canto Five of the Inferno. But also, more importantly, the continued link in Eliot's mind between the the health or sickness of, on one hand, sexual longing, on the other hand, religious longing, that they seem to share the, the same fate. And that's why the whole problem, the whole sexual uh, relational problem becomes a, an appropriate uh, diagnostic tool for understanding spiritual crisis. Is it like this in death's other kingdom, waking alone at the hour when we are trembling with tenderness, lips that would kiss, form prayers to broken stone against the image of idolatry. Simone Weil said, the longing to love the beauty of the world and a human being is essentially the longing for the incarnation. It is mistaken if it, is in, if it thinks it is anything else. The incarnation alone can satisfy. Again, she links the longing, eros longing, with the religious longing and essentially turns Freud on his head. A la Freud, we read these things and say, well, a spirituality is a result of repressed uh, sexual longing. Simon Weiss says, well, all this sexual um, athleticism uh, is, just a, uh, is just a symptom of a spiritual crisis. Trembling with tenderness, lips that would kiss form prayers to broken stone. The eyes, that's the problem, you see. Here's the problem. The eyes... In section four, the eyes are not here. There are no eyes here in this valley of dying stars. In this hollow valley, this broken jaw of our lost kingdoms. Remember the man in the hyacinth garden? My eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead. Looking into the heart of light, the silence. The eyes fail. There are no eyes here. See, that's the problem. And the eyes that he's thinking of, I think, are the eyes which Dante saw in Canto 31 of the Purgatorio. At the top of the Purgatorial Mountain, Dante meets Beatrice. And Beatrice has been his inspiratrix all the way through his, uh, his journey. And Dante is being instructed by the three theological virtues in the form of three uh, maidens, faith, hope, and love. And they are now going to lead him to Beatrice. Now you have to get the scene. There's a kind of triangular form here. There's Dante at one corner, Beatrice at the other, and the griffin, which is the Dante's image of the Christ in the other. Now the griffin... Uh, is a mythological creature which Dante uses for Christ because it contains two natures. Uh, the griff griffin is a combined composite figure uh, of, the, of the eagle and the lion. 
And for Dante, it is the composite figure of the divine and human nature of Christ. Here's what happens at the top of the Purgatorial Mountain. The, the theological virtues say to Dante, Look deep, look well, however your eyes may smart. We have led you now before those emeralds from which love shot his arrows through your heart. Speaking of the eyes of Beatrice. And then Dante says, A thousand burning passions, every one hotter than any flame, held my eyes fixed to the lucent eyes she held fixed on the griffin. Like sunlight in a glass, the twofold creature shone from the deep reflection of her eye. Now in the one, now in the other nature. You want to know what eyes are for? That's what eyes are for. Finally, that's what eyes are for. All the rest of it is just to keep from bumping into things. See? But that's what they're for. And Eliot says the eyes are not here. The eyes are not here that can do that. Because, well, because why? I look into the eyes, and the eyes are looking back at me. Or I look into the eyes, and the eyes are looking out at a busy world. Or I don't even look into the eyes, or whatever. But the eyes are not here that will do that. I mean, here in our time, I have this little vision. In our time, in that same situation, faced with that same scene, we would say, Beatrice, <laughs> over here. And then we start going doing our little stunts yeah. to try to get her to look. The eyes are not here. There are no eyes here in this valley of dying stars, in this hollow valley, this broken jaw of our lost kingdom. In this last of meeting places, when he says that, we have to remember what he's been preoccupied with in Sweeney and in uh, Cousin Nancy, in uh, Proofrock, in the Wasteland, he's been preoccupied, and many others, he's been preoccupied with the collapse of human relationships as a symptom of the spiritual crisis. So he says, in this last of meeting places, namely the last place where there is still some, in a sense, numinosity in, in this dead land, the erotic place, in a sense, in this last of meeting places, we grope together and avoid speech. Gathered on this beach of the Tumid River. In other words, the river is no longer, Ganga is sunken. The river is swollen. But guess what? We can't get across it. The woman in section two of the wasteland, speak to me. Why do you never speak? I never know what you're thinking. Speak. We grope together and avoid speech. There are no eyes here. Eyes that can do for us what the eyes of Beatrice did for Dante. So it's a question of eyes. And now he says, sightless, unless, unless, the eyes reappear as the perpetual star, not the fading star, not the dying star, 
sightless unless the eyes reappear as the perpetual star, multifoliate rose of death's twilight kingdom, the hope only of empty men. It's a reference to, I think, Paradiso Canto 30, in which the following takes place. Dante comes to, discovers a river of light. First of all, he is blinded. As a flash of lightning striking on our sight destroys our visual spirits so that the eye cannot make out even a brighter light, just so an aureole burst all about me, swathing me so completely in its veil that I was closed in light and could not see. And a voice speaks. The love that keeps this heaven ever the same greets all who enter with such salutation and thus prepares the candle for his flame. No sooner had these words penetrated my hearing than I felt my powers increase beyond themselves, transcended and elated. My eyes were lit with such new-given sight that they were fit to look without distress on any radiance, however bright. I saw a light that was a river flowing, Light within light between enameled banks, painted with blossoms of miraculous spring. And from the river as it glowed and rolled, live sparks shot forth to settle on the flower. A voice says to him, The flame of high desire that makes you yearn for greater knowledge of these things you see pleases me more the more I see it burn. But only this same water satisfies such thirst as yours. You must bend down and drink. So spoke the sun and pole star of my eyes, the perpetual star, Beatrice. Beatrice is the perpetual star, the pole star in Dante. And she says, you must bend down and drink. This is a, a, an echo, I think, of what, uh, of Damyata. Uh, There's a kind of a baptismal image here, but of course it's, it's now a river of light. And then Beatrice adds, the river and the jewels you see dart in and out of it, and the smiling flowers are dim foretaste of their reality. Dante says, I bent down to drink in paradise of the sweet stream that flows its grace into us, so to make better mirrors of our eyes. So you see, it's not enough to have Beatrice be the mirror, mirror's force, but at some point, and this is at the end of the journey, we have to drink of that river which will turn our, our eyes into those kind of mirror. No sooner were my eyes, eaves, sweetly drowned in that bright stream to drink than it appeared to widen and change form till it was round. In other words, it's the river of light, once one drinks of it, becomes, opens up and becomes the celestial rose, the multifoliate rose. So the perpetual star which is the eyes of Beatrice, lead finally to the drinking of the river of light, the opening of the eyes, and one sees the multifoliate rose, which is the transcendent image at, at, the, uh, at the end of the Paradiso. Dante goes on. Remember, Eliot had said, uh, let me also wear deliberate disguises. Dante says, I have seen masqueraders here below shed the disguises that had hidden them and show their true appearances. 
Just so the sparks and spring flowers changed before my, my eyes into a greater festival, and I saw the vision of both courts of paradise. So Eliot says we are sightless unless the eyes reappear, unless somehow we can connect with something like the eyes that led Dante across all the streams he had to cross, the perpetual star that leads to the multifoliate road. Most people read this last part, the hope only of empty men, as a kind of desperation, that all we can do, all we can do is hope somehow that there will be a return of, uh, of the kind of spiritual resources that were available for Dante, etc. But empty here is being used in a different way altogether. It's being used in terms of kenosis, which is what it, we get. There's the great passage in Paul's letter to the Philippians from which derives the, the whole uh, mysticism of kenosis. Paul says, Let that mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who having a divine nature, yet did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but instead emptied himself, becoming obedient. Empty himself, becoming obedient. Sightless, unless the eyes reappear, as the perpetual star, multifoliate rose of death's twilight kingdom, the hope only of empty men. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Here we go round the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. Now, the prickly pear, you will notice, is not the multifoliate rose. The prickly pear is a little cactus. And so what we have after that lofty depiction of what we need, we come back in section five to what we have. And what we have is a little, simple, childish jingle, which I think is another version of a penny for the old guy. Without those other resources, we will at some point resort to the crude mechanisms that we have for trying to have an experience postulated by the whole of our being. We resort to one of those, to, to what Girard calls the primitive sacred. And to, to me, this is an echo of Guy Fawkes Day. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, not around the multifoliate road. But we'll have, we, we will join in some crude ritual one way or another. And if we don't have transcendent ones that lead us to the multifoliate rose, we will invent one to go around the prickly pear. But it's very important to note that it says at five o'clock in the morning, at least it, I found it important to note that, because in a way it's the morning after. Uh, it's, all, it's too late for that, really. It's not even working anymore. And to demonstrate that it's not working, it's a kind of deliberate disguise. The Eliot said, let me wear such deliberate disguises 
as will allow me to re-inhabit the cultural delusional system. Marching around the prickly pear and reciting the little jingle is a form of the deliberate disguise. We know better, and once we know better, it really won't work anymore. It's a kind of make-believe. It's too much of an ersatz experience to really be, uh, to really take. And at the risk of pressing the Girardian hermeneutic too much, I would like to suggest, I think that we're justified by, by the epigraph, A Penny for the Old Guy, to see this as a reversion to the primitive sacred, which is in each instance a variation on Guy Fawkes Day. What I'd like to do is read to you a poem by Coventry Patmore, which as far as I know has no conscious connection to this poem, except I would like for it, for it to be, I would like to put it on the record as an elaborate echo of Here We Go Round the Prickly Pear. It's called A London Fate, F-E-T-E, but I think the pun on the word fate, you see, is fascinating itself. So this is the prickly pear, uh, enlarged somewhat, which is a, a variation on Guy Fawkes. All night, fell hammers, shock on shock, with echoes, Newgate's granite clang. Scaffold built at eight o'clock, they brought the man out to be hanged. There's a lot of interesting things here. Uh, Newgate is a prison, you see, uh, but Newgate is an interesting term, too. There's a lot of little puns in the poem. Then came all the people there, a single cry that shook the air. Mothers held up their babes to see, who, hurt, who spread their hands and crowed for glee. Here a girl from her vesture tore a rag to wave with and joined the roar. There's a man with yelling tired, stopped, and the culprit's crime inquired. Now that's very interesting, you see. This is a man who's been yelling, cheering, and he finally gets tired of that and stops and asks what he did. Girard makes the point about these, this primitive sacred, which is that, that the, the pharmacos, the, the victim, uh, the culpability of the victim is purely incidental. It's actually random. The selection is much more random than we would realize. And so the culpability is incidental. And this man, he's involved in it, and then he stops afterward to ask what the crime was. A sot below the doomed man, dumb, bawled his health to the world to come. These blasphemed and fought for places. These half-crushed cast frantic faces to windows where in freedom sweet others enjoyed the wicked treat. At last the show's black crisis pended, struggles for better standings ended, the rabble's lips no longer cursed, but stood agape with horrid thirst. Thousands of breasts beat horrid hope, thousands of eyeballs lit with hell, burnt one way all to see the rope unslacken as the platform fell. The rope flew tight, and then the roar burst forth afresh, less loud, but more confused and affrightening than before. I'm going to finish the poem, but it's absolutely crucial to me that in this poem, what it recognizes is that the execution does not work in the sense that it does not resolve the social tensions. In the primitive sacred, it resolves those social tensions. It creates social unanimity. 
it brings the world together again. Herod and Pilate become friends. You see? It's unanimity minus one. Everybody is brought together very temporarily. But it's not working. Notice it's not working. That's absolutely central. And then the roar burst forth afresh, less loud, but more confused and affrightening than before. A few harsh tongues forever led the common din, the chaos of noises, but ear could not catch what they said. As when the realm of the damned rejoices at winning a soul to its will, that clatter and clangor of hateful voices sickened and stunned the air until the dangling corpse hung straight and still. The show complete, the pleasure passed, the solid masses loosened fast. A thief slunk off with ample spoil to ply elsewhere his daily toil. A baby strung its doll to a stick. A mother praised the pretty trick. Two children caught and hanged a cat. Two friends walked on in lively chat. And two who had disputed places went forth to fight with murderous faces. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Here we go round the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. That is, it's the morning after. It's not working. It's too late. It's not working anymore. Now, the bad news is that it's what we resort to. The second bad news is that it's not working anymore. And the good news is that it's not working anymore. It's bad news that it's not working anymore because if that's all we have, we have to feed the mechanism the only way we, ha we can, and that is with more victims in the hope that it might begin to work. The good news is that it's not working anymore. And the reason it's not working anymore is what we'll talk about in a few minutes. But before we get there, we have to go back to the poem. Here we go round the prickly pear. Here we go round the prickly pear. That's a falling off, a tremendous falling off after the admission that we can only empty ourselves and hope that the perpetual star, the multifoliate rose, will revisit us. And then, after the marching around the prickly pear, between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. This part of the poem is a kind of psalm. I mean, I keep, it, it keeps feeling to me like a psalm. It's the cry of, a, of the psalmist at a moment of travail. The moment of travail is an, an incredible lacuna, an incredible gap that cannot be crossed without the proper, in a sense, sacramental resources. Cannot get across. We have not the perpetual eyes. Uh, we have not the rituals. All we have is Guy Fawkes Day or marching around the cactus. We can't get across. And so it's it's a lament over this gap that keeps falling in there. And it's something that approaches the exclamation of faith, but can't finally utter it. Between 
the idea and the reality between the motion and the act falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. Between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response falls the shadow. Life is very long. In this context, that line is so, so pathetic. Between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence, between the essence and the descent, falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. Now the poem tries to re-express those, those three salient points. For thine is Life is, for thine is the, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang but a whimper. Somebody searched out one of these uh, literary embryologies. Uh, and found out and got uh, T.S. Eliot to acknowledge that uh, the, the critic was right, that Eliot was influenced when he chose this term, Falls the Shadow, by an obscure poem by Ernest Dawson with a Latin title, the English translation of which is, I am not what I was when kind Sonara was my queen. Now just hear that in terms of that whole forlorn glancing at Dante's world and Beatrice. I am not what I was when kind Sonara was my queen, when the eyes, the perpetual star and that led one to the multifoliate row. And the poem goes like this. Last night, ah, yesterday, betwixt her lips and mine, there fell thy shadow, Sonara, thy breath, my, thy breath, was shed upon my soul between the kisses and the wine. And I was desolate and sick of an old passion. Yea, I was desolate and bowed my head. I have been faithful to thee, Sonara, in my fashion. Can you feel that? All night upon mine heart I felt her warm heart beat. Night long within mine arms in love and sleep she lay. Surely the kisses of her bought red mouth were sweet. But I was desolate and sick of an old passion. When I awoke at five o'clock in the morning, when I awoke and found the dawn was gray, I have been faithful to thee, Sonara, in my fashion. <clears throat> I have forgot much, Sonara, gone with the wind, flung roses, roses riotously with the throng, dancing to put thy pale, lost lilies out of mine. But I was desolate and sick of an old passion, yea, all the time, because the dance was long. I have been faithful to thee, Sonara, in my fashion. I cried for madder music and for stronger wine. 
But when the feast is finished and the lamps expire, then falls thy shadow, Sonara. The night is thine, and I am desolate and sick of an old passion, yea, hungry for the lips of my desire. I have been faithful to thee, Sonara, in my fashion. I am not what I was when kind Sonara was my queen. We have to remember this poem when we read Ash Wednesday. Because in terms of this poem, Ash Wednesday is the rediscovery of Sonara, the rediscovery of the perpetual star. But at this point, the shadow falls. There fell thy shadow, Sonara. Part of what's going on in this poem is a recognition, I think, of a sacramental crisis. Those spiritual resources that might bring us out of this sterile world over into a place where we can have an experience postulated by the whole of our being are not available. And that's and that's what I'm referring to as a sacramental crisis. The irony is, or the paradox is, that the sacramental crisis is the fruit of centuries of sacramental work. In a book on this subject, a German theologian, whose name is J.B. Metz, said this, The secularity of the world, as it has emerged in the globally heightened form, has fundamentally, though not in all its individual historical forms, arisen not against Christianity, but through it. It is originally a Christian event, and hence testifies in our world situation to the power of the hour of Christ at work within history. He goes on to point out that there are three salient features of the secularization of the world. One is the separation of church and state, and the second is the independence of science from doctrine, and the third is the de-deification of nature. In every instance, a good thing. All of them brought about by the influence of the Christian tradition. That's his argument. The sacramental crisis, in a sense, exists because the sacraments have worked. Frazier, Joseph Campbell, Jesse Weston, Mircea Eliade et al. recognize the similarity between the Christian sacramental rituals and the pagan cults of primitive sacralization. In other words, the Christian mass and the Christian mysteries that, it's a, that, it, that it precipitates is a version of the mystery cults of Dionysus, Attis, Adonis, Osiris, etc. What they fail to recognize is that it undermines them all and could only undermine them by being apparently identical with them. In the same way that methadone has to have the same effect as heroin in order to break the addiction. In the same way, an AA meeting might look like a drinking party. You see? But one of them is going in another direction. The primitive sacred original participation looks like final participation, mocks in a way final participation, mimics final participation. The primitive sacred presents itself as the kingdom, but it isn't. 
the Gospels and the sacramental ramification of the Gospel implications into the viscera of Christian awareness has produced both the sacramental crisis within the Christian community and the sacrificial crisis in the culture at large. The mechanisms of primitive sacralization, all variations on Guy Fawkes Day, have been compromised by the gospel revelation. Another way of saying that is that the deliberate disguises, to use Eliot's phrase, are, are now entirely too deliberate. The act of concealing is too conscious. The truth is out. Go back to Charles Williams just for a second. I almost finished. Williams points out that Shakespeare and Milton, when they meet, met this crisis that Eliot is facing, of course, they met, they met the crisis with somewhat more uh, cultural resources at hand than Eliot had. That the crisis was the confrontation with a contradiction. That they were great. They left great poems because they refused to let go of one of the elements of the contradiction. And Charles Williams says that Keats was a lesser poet because he was willing to, in a sense, let go of the, of the rational mind if he had to and become a romantic. In other words, he was willing to escape into a Rousseau-esque a romanticism because, for one thing, the Rousseau-esque romanticism had not yet run its course and ended with Kurtz and Nietzsche. But then Williams says this about Keats's way of trying to get out of this thing by letting go of one of the contradictions. He says, if the beauty of the rainbow depends for its effectiveness on our not knowing its woof and texture, if to know the actual identity of any apparent loveliness is to destroy it, of what worth, even, po even poetically, can that loveliness actually be? It depends on a point of view. It depends on keeping something out. And what use is any imagination in the end that depends on keeping something out? where I'd like for it to lead us is to, this, to the place where we share with Eliot the tremendous problematic or paradox of, of ritual and of sacrament and of sacramental life, sacramental resources. Eliot's too conscious. We've got Nietzsche and Kurtz as examples. And it's now become, because of the presence of this other in a sense, decoding tradition, it's now become more and more obvious that at the heart of the primitive sacred is, a, is Guy Fawkes Day. We can't resort to those rituals anymore. We have to become conscious. We have to become conscious. And this poem ends with the desperation of knowing that only a kind of sacramental consciousness can save him and knowing essentially what Frazier and Campbell know. And that is that there's an uncanny and uncomfortable relationship between the Eucharist and Guy Fawkes Day. This is the end of Reflections on T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. 
Thank you for your interest in our work.